asking the question, how many electrical engineers does it take to change a light bulb? And the answer is none, because they simply just redefine darkness as the industry standard. You know, and that happens sometimes when people don't know the job they're supposed to do, they don't understand it, or maybe they don't want to do the job that they've been tasked to do. They just redefine the job and do their own thing. Pull this one down a little bit. 1969, Paul Anka wrote a song after spending some time with a singer by the name of Frank Sinatra. Song is popular, it's been sung many times, covered by many different artists. It's titled My Way. The song was based upon a song that Paul Anka had heard and bought rights to a couple of years before, but it was in a conversation that he had over dinner with some friends, and Frank Sinatra was there, that you know he was thinking about just being done with what he was doing. So the words of the song are, and now the end is near, and now I, so I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll say it clear, I'll state my case of which I am certain. I lived a life that's full, I've traveled each and every highway, and more, much more than this, I did it my way. Regrets I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. I did what I had to do, and saw it through without exemption. I planned each charted course, each careful step along the byway, but much, but more, much more than this, I did it my way. Well, it may have been a hit record for Frank Sinatra, and Paul Anka may have done quite successful with writing that song for him, but that's not the way the game goes when you're talking about God. We might like the idea of doing it things our way. God doesn't. He showed that in the garden in Adam and Eve when Satan tempted them and said, you'll become as wise as God. God told them not to touch the tree, but they did. They realized their mistake of doing it their way after they touched the tree and ate from it. They tried to redefine how it's done and man continues to do so. But God has told us how it's going to be done. He's told us what we must do to be saved and how we are to live in his church. You listen to the news and you hear story after story of those people, I'm thinking of those who violate the law now, because when you violate the law, you're doing it your way. You're saying, this is how I choose to do it. I don't want to do it the way society says I should. People live like they could live their lives any way they want, despite what the law says they find out oftentimes more often than not, that it doesn't go their way. I think the same thing applies to those who think they can live in Christ the only way that they want. That their idea of commitment and God's idea of commitment are, well, they really don't matter. Consequently, people do things their way. It causes them to miss out on many of the blessings that God has in store for them. The saints in Thessalonica were just like you and me. They were living their lives going day to day and had the same cares and concerns that you and I have about family, about jobs, about life, with questions about what is to come. But then they heard the gospel and their lives were changed. No longer did they live for my way, but for God's way. 
For it says in chapter 1, as we said, said a couple of weeks ago, they became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. They were doing it God's way. And so in our text this morning, which is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 16, we're going to see what it means to do it the way of the Thessalonians do it God's way. And that they received the word of God. They imitated other Christians. They imitated Christians that they didn't know because as they suffered and others were suffering before them. So they imitated Christians in their life, in their faith, and in their suffering. But the very first thing that Paul tells us in Second Th- in First Thessalonians chapter two and verse thirteen is it says, "For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe." They received the word of God. It was entrusted to them. They received it for what it was. They heard it calmly, yet joyfully. They attended to it very candidly. It was very important. They considered it carefully because this was a life-changing message. That life does not end at the grave. And so they received it. Not only did they hear it, they received it and they accepted it. They received it with a hearty welcome. They accepted it fully. They accepted it by faith. They accepted it with joy and confidence. They didn't receive it as it was was the word of man. You know, men will speak in many ways. Some will speak eloquently, cleverly, affectionately. And that's okay. But sometimes they're using those mannerisms and methods of delivery to effect change in a person. The power is in the Word of God. It's what God says that matters, not in how the person's delivering the message. And so while preachers and teachers should be skilled at what they're doing, don't get so hung up on the fact that they're maybe not as eloquent as someone else, and therefore they're not as good as someone else. Those in Thessalonica received the gospel as it was God's word, not man's word. It was God's revealed word, and so they received it with reference to its divine character. They knew it was infallible, and they were obedient to its authority. And they received it, and it worked in their lives. You see, it's one thing to receive something and hearing it. I think of the parable of the sower that we've talked about many times. Four different types of people. Some were hard-hearted. It was the pathway. And it was the seed that the Word of God was snatched away. Two groups heard it in the stony ground. And immediately it grew. It grew. But when it got hot, it died. And in the thorny ground, they heard it as well. And it started growing. But when you sow something and it falls into the weedy area, it grows, but it's in competition and... Well, he says the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choked out the word. But on the good soil, the good soil that had been carefully prepared and nurtured and was ready to go, the crop, the seed you know, yielded a hundredfold, a sixtyfold, thirtyfold. 
Because seed is the word of God. Those of Thessalonica took it. It worked in their lives. It was practical. It was efficient. It changed their lives. It changed their character. It gave them a calling beyond themselves. But too many want to get by the easy way. One day a professor was discussing a fairly complicated concept to his students that were in a pre-med class. And this student just took the course because it was maybe required or maybe he thought it would be an easy one. Don't know why somebody would think physics would necessarily be easy, but he took it. But he asked the professor, he said, Sir, what is the purpose of this pointless information? And he says, being that you're a pre-med student is to save lives. And so he continues on with the lecture. But he was asked a question by the same student a few minutes later. And he says, so, professor, tell me, how does physics save lives? You could tell he didn't want to study. He didn't want to do this work. To which the professor just said, it keeps ignoramuses like you out of medical school. Yeah. I like that. He wanted to do it his way. I don't want to go through physics to go into medical school. I don't need that. I just need some biology and some anatomy and some physiology. I don't need physics. Well, maybe there's some things in physics that you did need to know to give you a foundation for your learning. Did you like school the first 12 years of school? I did. Some people don't. I ask young people sometimes, do you like school? And they'll say, no, nah, I don't like school. I say, well, you better like it because you've got a lot of years to do it. Did you like college? What were your best years, your worst years? You saw on our Facebook feed, I posted yesterday, that Austin's team at Gila Bend in soccer won the 4A state championship. And I know that's going to be a marker of one of his great things in high school, a senior, and he's on the winning state championship soccer team. But it keeps me reminded of that we're, while we may celebrate those high points, there are always times of learning in our life. So effectively, we're still in school. You and I will never stop learning in this life. If we do, we're done. When we come to church every Lord's Day, hopefully we come to learn as well as to have fellowship with one another. We do come to worship and praise God in song and prayer. But we come to learn as well. Do you learn anything? Are you learning something? If you're not, maybe I'm not doing my job, or maybe you're not doing yours. When you and I hear the Word of God, we should receive it just as it is. We're not reading a condensated, condensed version. I'll get it right. We're listening to the Word of God. You know, I may use some illustrations like the one with the, the pre-med student. And they may get a laugh, but the message has to be focused not on the illustration, but on the Word of God. Applying it to our lives. So to do that, you have to listen to it. You have to learn what it says. So, question. When was the last time you walked out of this building thinking or saying, hmm, I need to do something? That's, boy, he really hit a point there. I need to think about that. I need to change the way I'm living, or I need to do something more involved. Because this is important. I didn't realize that. I just learned that. 
or it reconfirmed it to you in some fashion. James chapter 1, verse 21 through 25. It's a longer passage, so I'll let you give, take a little bit of time to turn to it. James chapter 1, 21 through 25. And James says, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word of God implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and has gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. It should be obvious that when we are receiving the word of God, when it has its work in us, that we'll do something. We will make a response that may be just greater commitment. It's just a reminder. It may be deeper worship. It may be something, but it should cause us to reflect on how am I living. You know, as we go through our Sunday night class where we're reading the same five chapters every day for a week, you keep seeing some things and... Every one of us is going to see something a little bit different because of who we are and what we're going through at the time. I'm telling you, there are things that I see and, hmm, I had to think about that. I want to know more about that. And we'll learn more about it as we go on. They received and accepted the Word of God. But they imitated also other Christians. The next verse, the first part of it. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. In all likelihood, they didn't know too much about their brethren in Judea. They were miles away. But they were going through some of the same things as we'll see momentarily as we get into my third point. But they imitated them in matters of faith, the matters of holding up and enduring under persecution. But I have a question. This is fun. Have you ever been to a formal dinner? Yeah. Many of us have. But you know the formal dinners, the kind where you have multiple courses? And so many dishes and so much silverware that the first time you're there, you don't know what to do with it. You know, at home it's easy, you know. We're tired. You said, let's just eat on paper plates and throw something in the microwave. And throw the trash away when we're done. Formal dinners aren't like that. And everybody's watching you. So the first one is going to make a move. Okay, which, how do I do? And, you know, takes a while. Nervous? Unsure of yourself? Came across a story of President Calvin Coolidge years and years ago. He invited some of his friends from back home to dinner at the White House. And I imagine that they were elated. Wouldn't you feel great if you were invited to the White House for a dinner with the president? But they didn't know how to behave on such an occasion. The president? The White House? They thought the best policy will just do whatever the president does. After all, he's one of us. We've known him for years, you know. And so they finished their dinner. They're going to have coffee. 
President Coolidge takes some of his coffee, pours a little bit into a saucer. So the people from the hometown did the same thing. Then he added some cream to it. They did too. He put some sugar in it, and they did too. And so they just knew that he was going to take that saucer and drink instead of from the cup, from the saucer. And what he did was he put the saucer on the floor and called the cat. you got to be careful in imitating people. But it pays to imitate people, the good in people, their good habits, their good manners, their good actions. What things have you learned from others? Years ago at the Tulsa workshop, there was a young preacher who had been working with Jeff Walling. Jeff was dynamic. He was a drama major. He could really, he could preach, but he could also, he knew how to communicate. Well, when I heard this young man, I don't know how much younger he was than Jeff, but he'd been working with Jeff for two or three years. And there was something about his delivery that just kept me from listening to his sermon. I just couldn't figure out what it was. It kept bothering me. And then it occurred to me that it was his mannerisms. It was like he was Jeff Walling Light. I mean, if Jeff came outside the pulpit like such and leaned in a certain way, he did this exact same thing. Now, you will pick up those things from somebody who you follow without even knowing it. Because that's just the way human nature is. And we learn from people who teach us. Well, I don't know how much time I was distracted. But I was distracted. But then I realized and remembered something from one of my communication professors at Fort A. State in a graduate class in nonverbal communication. And when cases like that, when he was judging a debate tournament with a local high school or college... He said there'd be something that would be distracting about the speaker, the shirt they wore, the dress she wore, the way their hair was done, or lack thereof, something. And if it was distracting, he took a note on his critique sheet, just a couple of letters. He said, in that way I dealt with it. And then I could listen to what they were saying. And when I realized that, I put them together, and I thought, this is what it is. He's been with Jeff. He's not mimicking him. He's just been with him. And so I listened to what he said, and what he said was very good. In life, you have to try to be yourself and not someone else. At sunset, I learned from a great many, many great preachers. But the most I learned, I think I learned when we got some of them out of the classroom to teach us about life as preachers through some of their experiences. I will forever remember Gerald Payton telling us when he was in Italy, the best five years of his ministry in Italy, For 18 years, the best five years, he read the New Testament every week. I'm just amazed to read the New Testament 52 times a year for five years. I think you'd almost have it memorized by that time without even trying. uh, Richard Baggett told us before he came over, he said that day before Friday, he read the New Testament, figuring out what he might want to tell us, some points. One of my classmates asked me, he said, Richard, what did you mean? That you read the New Testament. Did you just pick through a few passages and places, chapters? No, I read the New Testament. Richard was known for being able to speed read. He would read eight newspapers every morning. Four of them in different languages. Four in English, one in Russian, one in Japanese, and two in... I forget what they were. He knew Hebrew, he knew Greek, and he would teach from it. 
From others, we learned about being a disciple of Christ and balancing preaching with family life. And it was just amazing outside the classroom. These are all aspects that are worthy of imitation, the things that we learned. And any time of devotion to God in a person's life, we should do as best we can. When we see good in somebody, we should imitate it. So Paul said to those in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 15 and 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 15 and 16, he says, For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore I exhort you, be imitators of me. And of course, the one that we always remember, he's more, much more easily quoted, is in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 1, where he just says at the beginning of the chapter, Be therefore imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Now pause for just a moment and ask yourselves a question. Is my life worthy of imitation? You're asking yourself, not me. I hope my life is worthy of imitation. I hope yours is as well. But we have to ask ourselves, today is my life worthy of imitation? For those in Thessalonica, their lives were worthy of imitation. That they became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 7. And they also suffered for Christ. Stating in the remaining verses of the scripture... Starting in verse 14 in the, in the B portion of it. For you also endure the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the utmost. They didn't know that their brethren in Judea, what they were going through, is because the gospel was there first and proclaimed. But when it got to Thessalonica, they were facing persecution just as well. And they knew what it was like, and they still held up underneath it. Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We have been warned. Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, we talked about this in Matthew's rendition of it last week on Sunday night, but in Mark chapter 10, oops, that's Matthew, wrong passage there. But in Mark chapter 10, after James and John were striving to who's going to sit on his right and on his left, and Jesus reminded them that the greatest would be their servant, that they needed to give up, and they had the rich young ruler there. Who had Jesus told him to sell all that he had. He says to them, Peter asked him the question, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will not receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first 
along with persecutions. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said that he came to divide a man's enemies. I came to set a man against his father and mother, daughter. A man against his father and a daughter against her mother-in-law. This is Matthew chapter 10, excuse me, verse 34 and following. I did not come to bring peace but sword. A man's enemies will be members of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. He has lost it for my sake will find it. They're going to go through persecution. Now what kind did they face? They received from what Paul said in chapter 1 and verse 6, the word in much affliction. The first outbreak of violence occurred after their conversion in Acts chapter 17 and verse 5. They belonged to those churches of Macedonia in which the apostle long afterward wrote the Corinthians in in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, having experienced a great trial of affliction. It came from their countrymen. Their trials attested to the genuineness of their faith. Because if their faith wasn't genuine, they would have said, forget this. I'm done. The heathen had no quarrel with the dead faith. The Thessalonians did not sleep as did the others. They discovered by sharp experience what Paul meant when he told Timothy, all who desire to live godly in Christ will be persecuted. Their trials involved the precious experience of not only suffering as their brethren did, but also sharing in the persecution of Christ and his sufferings. Paul said in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10, fellowship in Christ's sufferings. Their trials manifested the strength of their faith, their commitment to Christ. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 6, about those of the dispersion, saying, In this you greatly rejoice, their salvation. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you do not see him, have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your soul. Their persecution, their enduring that patiently, tied them to the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. And it manifested the strength of their character in Christ. But you know what? They aren't the only ones facing persecution. Christians throughout the world today are facing persecution. The top ten nations in the world today that persecute Christians simply for being a Christian are North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, Sudan, Pakistan, Eritrea, Libya, Iraq, Yemen, and Iran. That's in the order according to open doors, deals, and follows persecutions of Christians. But it's not that far removed. We suffer things today in how we are maligned for our faith. These people are suffering physically. Assaults, death, imprisonment. You know what country is number 39 on the list of the top 50? 
It's just a few miles south of us. It's called Mexico. Kind of blew me away. Was surprised to see that Mexico would have so such a high ranking of persecution of Christians. But again, if we are living faithful in Christ, we know that we're going to face opposition. And we praise God for it. No, we don't like it, but it may mean that we're doing something right. And Luciano Pavarotti relates a story of when he was young. His father took him and introduced him to a tenor by the name of Arrigo Pola. He lived in that same town of Medina, Italy. He was taken as a pupil and he also enrolled in a teacher's college. He graduated and he asked his father, shall I be a teacher or a singer? And his father mentally replied, Luciano, if you try to sit on two chairs, you will fall between them. For life, you must choose one chair. I chose one. I took seven years of study and frustration before I made the, my first professional appearance, he writes. It took another seven years to reach the Metropolitan Opera. And now I think whether it's laying bricks, writing a book, whatever we choose, we should give ourselves to it. Commitment is the key. Choose one chair. And commitment is the key to living the Christian life. It's the only way to go to live for Christ. Don't, do it. Don't be half-hearted in your attendance. Don't be half-hearted in your prayer life. You're sharing the gospel, your Bible reading and study, and all the way down. Be committed all the way. And you'll be blessed as never before. And then on that day when the roll is called up yonder, that final call of the trumpet of Christ, what a day that day will be for those of us who have been faithful unto death to get that crown of life. I don't know where you are today, but I know that day will be a good one for those who are in Christ. For those who are outside of Christ, it will be a day of regret. But you can change that today by choosing to sit on the chair of commitment with Christ. And if you're subject to His commitment, why don't you please come to Jesus while we stand? While we stand.